Amen. As you are having a seat, uh, whether here, seat here in the sanctuary or in your seat, in your lazy boy at home, uh, we are glad to have each and every one of you joining with us in worship today. What an incredible word, man. I, I love that last song. Uh, it, it's our history. It's the history of the redeemed in, in a song. And so uh, I'm excited about that. Turning your Bible to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. I want to tell you by way of announcement today that if you are here uh, and you are not a member of Lindsay Lane North or you are beginning or walking through that membership process, uh, immediately after service today, we are going to have our North 101 class. And if you're thinking, well, that's different, you normally do it in the evening, I would remind you there's very little that we do at our church that is a sacred cow that we're not going to move and adjust. So, and if you're thinking, well, I'm bummed because I don't get pizza, uh, I would tell you get over it because we are having pizza uh, and uh, we're going to have a pizza lunch. Uh, but if you're here, we've got extra pizza. So if you're here and you want to know more about Lindsay Lane North, what we are, who we are as a church, what we stand for, what our vision is moving forward, uh, we communicate all of that in our North 101 class. And so it'll be immediately after we'll have some pizza. Uh, your kids are welcome to attend uh, and we have child care for them as well. So birth through fourth grade, we've got child care uh, as well. And so uh, please take advantage of that. Now, our North 101 class is part of our membership process. But even if you are not interested yet in becoming a member, plan on being at the class uh, because it is going to give you a great, some great information about who we are as a church. So you come, and it's a part of our membership process, but you do not, you're not automatically a member after completing the class. So uh, don't worry about that, but we would love to have you with us. And we're excited to see how it works in our new time slot. So, and we, I'm excited about some Pizza Hut pizza, right? So uh, if you, as you're turning to Mark chapter 4, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And we're specifically focused on the first eight books of the book of Mark, or eight chapters of the book of Mark. We're focused on Jesus's ministry in Galilee to the multitudes. There were masses of people, and in fact, to draw out instances where he's not ministering to a, group, a large group of people is pretty hard to do in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. And so in this ministry to the multitudes last week, we talked about kind of an overarching idea of why Jesus ministered to the multitudes. He wasn't in the business of accumulating a bunch of fans. He wasn't in the business of getting his name out there. He wasn't in the business of making sure that everybody knew how important he was. Hey, I'm the son of God. You should come see how important I am. That would only accumulate fans. But what he was interested in doing in calling the multitudes to him, bringing the multitudes in and drawing the multitudes, he was committed to calling the few. The few who would respond. And listen, this is a theme throughout Scripture. If you are to be a follower, a committed follower of Christ, you will never find yourself in the majority. This is the trend of Scripture. You will 
defy social norms in being a follower of Christ. He hasn't come to, commu- uh, to, to accumulate a bunch of people who like him. He's come to call those to be who would call him to be their Lord. And so he is calling disciples to him. And in that, we find Jesus's teaching. Jesus, in teaching the multitude, very accurately fulfills the purpose that we've spoke about last week, that he's calling a few out of the many. And so Jesus taught the multitude. In Mark chapter 4, we see some of Jesus's teaching because Jesus wasn't about accumulating a great name. In fact, number one in your notes is the secret. There is a secrecy in the book of Mark uh, that is echoed throughout the other synoptic gospels, but maybe not to the extent that Mark is. Uh, When Jesus would go about and he would heal somebody, he would heal them and he would give them very strange instruction. The instruction was, don't tell nobody. Hey, don't tell anybody who healed you. Just go and be healed. You're welcome. Don't tell anybody. When demons, demon-possessed, would come to him and they would cry out, we know who you are. You're the son of God. He would tell them, be quiet. Be silent. We're not ready for that yet, right? Here's these multitudes, I am, but I'm calling some. And so there was an idea of secrecy in Jesus' identity. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a group of, t- of uh, college students. I was at the University of Mobile, and we were in the middle of Ram Rush, which is basically the Christian spin-off Rush Week, okay? And so we had our Ram fam. I know, I know. We ha- I, had my, I was sitting beside, around my Ram fam at our table at the calf. We were eating lunch, and in walks this man older man and we had an empty spot beside of us and everybody kind of probably thought it was weird but obviously you don't tell someone that but the man got his food came and he sat beside me sat right beside me and started talking to the teenagers the new perspective this new students there at the university of mobile and he began asking questions about the university what they, what they felt about the university, how they, how they enjoyed it, what were things they liked, what were things they disliked. And it became very, very obvious to me that he desired to have a certain amount of secrecy to his identity. You see, I'd been there for three years. I knew who he was. This was Mark Foley, the president of our university. Those other students didn't know who he was from Adam's dog. And so they were real honest extremely honest, like making fun of the graven image that is the Ram statue that we have in our campus. Like they called it, like they, they called him out on idol worship. He called the president of the school out on idol worship. It's not, it's not what you think. It's just a statue, okay? But all the theology majors like to make a big deal out of it. But they were talking about that. They were down in some of the food in the calf. They were talking about this and that, that we should do differently. And at the end of the conversation, the end of the lunch, Dr. Foley gets up, and I say, just because I, I wanted them to know what they had done, I said, all right, we'll see you later, Dr. Foley. Thanks for eating with us. 
And I turned around to the most hostile group of eyes that I have ever seen. Like, you knew who he was, and you didn't say anything. You're like, throw a kid a bone here, right? And I was like, he wanted honest feedback, and you gave it to him. Like, yeah, and he's also pulling my scholarship next week. Like, you know, like they were, they were super upset, but he wanted, he shrouded his identity for a purpose. He shrouded his identity to get real feedback. One of the things you learn about in, in being a leader, being a pastor, I've learned this. The more people that you lead, the fewer people tell you what you need to hear. They'll tell you what you want to hear, but the fewer people will tell you what you need to hear. And that's what he wanted to know. He wanted to hear what the people were saying. And so Jesus was very secretive. In the, in the, not that he was, you know, shrouding everything, but there, there's an idea and an element of secrecy. And we find it even in his teaching. Even in his teaching. And so in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, let's read together. This idea of secrecy, the secret that Jesus is teaching about. It says this in verse 1, And he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. This was normal. Remember we talked about this last week. This was the same crowd that was almost crushing him to where they told him, Hey, prepare a boat. Right? So this is what they did. They prepared a boat. So that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land and he was teaching them many things in what? Parables. In parables. Everything he taught was in parables. What is a parable? Well, we understand, we know that on the surface value, a parable is a story. Right? There were two Types of storytelling in Jesus' day that were most prominent. One was fables and one was parables. The idea of a fable is if you are telling a story that is impossible, you know, like animals running around talking to each other, right? Go ahead and assume you're talking about a fable. But if you are in a, talking about a story that, that is lived out in your daily life. Something that every one of us have probably encountered or seen or witnessed or could totally happen tomorrow. Chances are that is a parable. And so these are the two different types of teaching styles of storytelling. And Jesus, being a master teacher, was telling stories related to the kingdom of heaven. We've studied this extensively, right? That he was speaking in parables, the word parable means to cast alongside. So it's a compound word in the Greek, para, meaning to come alongside, right? Alongside and then and then bull to pass, to pass or to cast, right? And so to cast alongside, it ran parallel to Jesus' teaching to strengthen the point. And he's teaching all of these in parables. And I don't have a problem with it until I read verse 10 through 12. Let's read it. And when he was alone, I mean all the crowds have left, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Father, give us understanding in your word. 
As Peter would say, this saying is difficult, but you have the words of life, so where else would we turn? So, Father, give us understanding and an ear to hear. God has you desire to teach us on your terms and not our own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be honest with you, church. I've struggled with the words of this passage my whole life. I am an evangelist at heart. I am about the gospel. I'm about everybody hearing the gospel message. So when I hear that Jesus taught in a style that prevented some from understanding about the kingdom of God and enriched others, I, it does not compute in my mind. I struggle to understand why Jesus, why would he not just teach in a plain fashion? Why would he not just teach and explain things and make it clear? He can use a story if he wants, but why is he excluding? In fact, he uses the terminology of those outside. He's there with his disciples and he says, yeah, but those outside, everything they get is going to be understood in parables. There was a cloaking, there was a hiding away, a secrecy about this teaching styles. But they were designed to reinforce and bring clarity about the kingdom of God. Parables were meant to make you think, to make people reason. They were to make people realize, to realize things about themselves, and then ultimately a parable was meant for you to respond. And so we look at verse 12 and we think, how could God, how could Jesus teach in a way that would exclude people from the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Warren Wiersbe used an illustration to describe what a parable did and how a parable functioned. He said a parable functions in three ways. There's three layers of a parable. He said the first layer is what he called a picture or an illustration. Now, this is a picture of my son. This is my oldest son, Cooper. Uh, he would probably tell you that he would think that I would have given an illustration with his sister on it, which she is probably cuter than he is. I was meaning to pander to the crowd, but he is helping with the children today. So he doesn't even know that I'm talking about him. But I got this picture off the wall. And uh, to illustrate a point, in our house, we have a ton of these. What's the point of a picture? Point of a picture is to give you some information about our family, right? To draw you in. And sometimes we, we decorate the sides and go, oh, look how pretty that picture is. Oh, I love that frame, right? Where did you get that? So that I can go and make my husband miserable and buy one for myself, right? The idea of a picture... I digress. The idea of a picture is to draw people in, to create a picture, to create something where people can see it, can get some base information, but it's meant to draw attention. And so there's a point in which a parable is meant to draw attention. And so the question that we ask ourselves at this level, if, as the parable as a picture is, what is it illustrating? What is this parable illustrating about 
reality? What is it illustrating about life? And it's very, very plain in most regards. It's very, very plain what they're describing. This is a normal thing that happens in day-to-day life. Agriculture and things like that. It's, It's a very obvious picture. Warren Wiersbe goes on further to say that it has a second purpose. The second purpose of a parable is to function like a mirror. Now, a picture is meant to draw your attention. What is a mirror's purpose? Reflection, right? Specifically, a reflection most of the time on you. Right? If I'm looking into a mirror, the face that is looking back to, at me is myself. And so I can fix whatever's ratchet on my face. I can, I can adjust my collar. I can fix my tie, whatever the case may be. A mirror helps me to discover something about me. In a parable, in the same way, after you get over the very, very base understanding of what is being illustrated... A parable begins to show you who you are. You begin to make decisions like, am I a wheat or am I a tear? Am I fertile ground or am I rocky soil? You begin to see yourself in light of the illustration. In light of the picture, you begin to see yourself played out. In the story, it functions like a mirror. But that's not the only function, only two functions of a parable. Because the last function of a parable is to function like a window. I recognize this is a picture frame that I just took all the stuff out of, all right? But I didn't want to carry around some massive window frame, all right? It functions as a window. Well, what do you, what's the point of a window? To see through, right? The idea of a window is to give you perspective into something, right? You put windows in your home so you can see out of, see into the outdoors, or some of the outdoors can see into and tell you how cute all your decor is, right? We put windows in our homes to see through. See, it functions as a picture to give us a very clear understanding of what's being said, It functions as a mirror to show us who we are. The last layer of a parable is that we see through it who God is. So a parable just doesn't reveal stuff about us. Now, sometimes we're reading the parables like, Dadgum, man, this is all over me, right? And we get stuck on me. Or I can't believe that God would do it this way. And we reject it, right? We get stuck on the me. But ultimately, God's plan for the parables was to reveal something about himself. And so we see through the parable something about God. Can I tell you that every person that heard Jesus speak that day, that heard the parables that he shared, every single person heard the picture. They saw the picture. Now, we won't go into it because we've already studied these passages of scripture, these parables recently, but the parable of the sower is a very clear illustration. It's a very clear picture 
of agriculture, right? A, sow, a, a, a farmer goes out and he sows seed. And some falls in good soil. Some is going to get a great return. Some's going to start to do well, but it's going to get choked out by the weeds. Some is going to fall on a rocky path. And some is just going to be destroyed. It falls on the path and it's going to be destroyed as soon as it lands. The birds of the air are going to come and pluck it out. Clearly, it's just an architecture, or it's an agricultural study. It's a picture of something they would be very, very familiar with in Jesus' day. Everybody heard the picture. Can I tell you this? Only a very select few saw what the parable was revealing about the kingdom of heaven. What the parable had to say, very few of them were willing to look through the parable to see God for who he is. Do you know why that's the case? Because the second layer. You see, Jesus came in terms that were different than what they thought that they should be. Jesus as Messiah, the Messiah, was supposed to be a military hero. He was supposed to orchestrate and bring about a military reign, a physical reign that would establish Israel back to the place of prominence that it always should have been. They would defeat Rome. It would deliver them from captivity, and they would be set free physically. But when Jesus began to identify the kingdom of God, he identified them in very, very different terms. Instead of looking like a natural born Jew, all of a sudden the kingdom of God has a different criteria. Now the kingdom of God has to respond a certain way, has to walk in obedience, has to follow the terms dictated by Jesus, who by the way was a Messiah that nobody wanted. You see, what kept people from seeing the revealed Christ through the parable was their own pride. Because a parable forces you to look at yourself. And when you see that you are deficient and you are inadequate, there's one of two options. You can either adjust, you can respond. The spiritual word is repent, or you can rebel. The reason why many of the people who heard the parable refused to understand them was because they were hard of heart. They had become dull of hearing. The Actually, the, the verse that is quoted here is Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember the... the Circumstances of Isaiah 6. We, I preached it not too long ago. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and there were, and there were seraphim that were crying out one to another, Holy, 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 and the whole place was full of smoke. They saw an incredible vision of God. And then... Isaiah recognized, in seeing God for who he was, he recognized his problem. What did he say? Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord 
of Lord. He saw himself for who he was. And then God made provision for him. Taking a coal, a seraphim took a coal from the altar, came and touched it to his lips, and God tells him, your sin has been atoned for. And then God says, he begins to see, who shall I send and who will go for us? Then Isaiah, having lips cleaned, being clean before God, atoned for, says, here I am, send me. Mic drop, Bible study over, tears well up in our eyes and people are saved, right? It's not where the story ends. The very next verses of scripture tell us the message that Isaiah is supposed to preach. Spoiler, it's not good news. God tells Isaiah, prepares Isaiah in this powerful way to communicate a message that he says, God says, will only harden the hearts of my people more and more. It will harden it to the place that they won't listen to me ever. And then I will bring ruin on them. This was the message Isaiah was supposed to communicate, right? This is not rainbows and, and butterflies. This is not warm fuzzies here, people. This is not grace and mercy. This is preach until the people are so dull of hearing that they won't hear another thing that I have to say. And he uses the same terminology, the same verse, right in verse 12. They may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear and not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. What Jesus was identifying in Israel was the status of their heart. Their, in their pride, they had become so important in their own mind, they refused to come to Christ, come to God on his, own, on his terms. They had settled for less than obedience. They had settled for compromise, and in so doing, they were marring the name of God. And so judgment was to come. The people of Israel, in, in, in Jesus speaking in parable, the people of Israel had found themselves in another similar place. Because Jesus didn't come on their terms, they rejected him. They were hard of heart, and they couldn't get over the fact that Jesus wasn't the Messiah the way that they wanted and defined for him to be Messiah. And so the end result of that was they rejected him. If they were there, they were there for the spectacle, but... So much emphasis is put on verse 12 that we miss verse 11. And it's the key to the whole passage. Look at verse 11. Jesus said to them, he said to who? His disciples, those that were in relationship with him, those that were closest to him. Listen to what he said. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Do you know what is perfectly reasonable? In light of my sin and in light of the holiness of God, let me tell you what is perfectly reasonable. It is perfectly reasonable for a God in perfection and me in the dirtiness and uncleanliness of my heart, it is perfectly understandable for a perfect God to leave 
me to destruction. Do you know why it's reasonable? Because I deserve it. I deserve it. That makes sense. It makes sense for a kid who's misbehaving to get a whooping. Right? It makes sense to discipline your children. Why? Because they need correction. And so it makes sense in my sin to be judged and to be condemned. I'm guilty. Do you know what doesn't make sense? That God would send a substitute for me. A substitute of his own likeness and essence who would come and live a life that I couldn't live amongst people just as broken as I am who would sacrifice and take a punishment on himself that if anyone in creation, if anyone in history deserved not to receive, it was him to take that upon himself so that I could understand and be connected with God. See, we focus so much on the fact that God is hiding truth and how could God do this? But can I tell you that God, people judging, God judging sin makes sense. What doesn't make sense is that God would allow those who would respond to a relationship with him to reveal himself to. That doesn't make sense, my friend. When we understand the parables, we understand that it's through a relationship. And yes, for me to think missionally, how could God allow people outside of him? Yes, to think missionally in that context, it would be counter to his character. But this isn't missionally. This is thinking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like this. That some will see and hear and see the picture and even look at themselves in the mirror and go, nope, I want no part of this. But some, but few, if Jesus is teaching on the narrow road and elsewhere is correct, a few will look at the mirror, will adjust their lives, will respond in relationship with Jesus, and through the parable will look and see the revelation of God to his people. A few, a remnant that have a relationship with him. In your notes... The mystery of the kingdom is found in relationship with its king. This is the secret. The word secret in the Greek is mysterion. It's where we get the word mystery. And so to understand the kingdom, we must not just be near Christ, be around Christ, be on the same hillside that Jesus is teaching on, not just be able to hear his voice, but to be in Christ, to be in relationship with him. Colossians 1.27, this is the mystery. This is the mystery. Christ in me, the hope. Of glory. You know what Paul's saying? It's crazy. It makes sense that God would send me, Saul of Tarsus, to send to a sinner's death. But the mystery is God has made a way for Christ to be in me. It's found in relationship. 
And so the parables were there to draw people into this relationship. Secondly, we see the shining. Uh, we see an example of this, right? Mark 4, 21 through 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought, into, brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed or not on a, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to him, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And we look at that in our pride and go, that's not fair. But in the context of the kingdom, it's exactly so. What does he say? What's the picture? The picture of this parable, right, is that a lamp is not meant to be hidden. It is meant to give light. And so in the same way that we would put light fixtures in places where they are to maximize the amount of light, that is, that is the picture that we have. A lamp is not put under a bushel. It's not put under a bed. It's put so the light can be maximized. It can give the utmost light. What's the mirror then? The mirror of this passage. What is it telling about me? Am I giving off the light of Christ? Am I reflecting Christ to a lost and dying world? If I am, then I will be entrusted with more. Do you know why some, when you look at people, you're like, man, they are so mature in their walk with God. They're so, it's so amazing to be around them. I had this conversation today in this church, today with somebody, and they were talking about how, how frustrating it can be to see people further along in their walk. Be like, man, I want to be where they're at. Do you know why they have grown in that understanding in their relationship with Christ? Because they started with obedience in the first place. And because they responded to the message of the gospel of Christ, God gave him his light. Gave them his light. And so they shine their light. Why does God continue to reveal himself to us as we grow in him? Because he knows that we will be good stewards to shine his light to others. Our light wasn't meant to be hidden. It was meant to be reflected. It was meant to be seen. And so am I being the light of Christ? If I'm not radiating the light of Christ and I'm radiating the light of the darkness of this world, then my friend, there's a problem because what we accumulate under our own power to reflect the light of Christ, if we don't have the light of Christ is not going to stand up to judgment. Even what we could accumulate in our good works on our own will be taken away. And we will spend eternity in a sinner's hell. Because it comes through a revelation of who God is. How are we light? Because his light is within us. And so in your notes, to have the light is to reflect the light. Right? This is the mirror takeaway. But here's what we miss in this. Right, If I'm not willing to change myself, if I'm not willing to reflect the light, if I've got too much invested in this world to be invested in this kingdom agenda, we miss the window. We miss the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. If we are to bear light, it comes 
the relationship with him. He is the light. Do you know what's inferred in that? Is everything else is darkness. And I don't care what self-help book you read. I don't care what encouraging word, what chicken soup for the soul, what uh, life for dummies you read. There is one way to see the revealed Christ. It's through the window of his word. We miss it. He is the good news. Light is good news. We don't have to remain in darkness. It's not, it's not a negative thing. Yes, we lay down our life. Yes, we surrender it all, but we do it because God has revealed himself as the light of the world. Thirdly, and finally, we see the seed. The seed, Mark 4 26 and 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprout and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The harvest has come. So, what's the picture? The picture's obvious, right? A farmer who's preparing for harvest, he sows seed. And he is completely powerless. Once the seed is planted, he can aid the seed. But as far as it goes, the seed and the nutrients that the seed can acquire through the earth is on the seed, right? He doesn't have any control. Ask any farmer about the weather. Ask any farmer about their produce. They'll tell you they can control some, but ultimately they don't have power over what is produced. So the mirror then is based upon the truth of the gospel. Am I growing to produce fruit? Am I the, the, am I the, the soil that the seed has found the good soil that is producing fruit that is preparing for the harvest? Is that me? Am I producing things of God? Am I progressing in my walk with the Lord? Is he revealing himself to me in fresh and new ways every day as I seek him diligently? Is this happening in my life? Because ultimately it brings us finally to the window. Seeing God through this parable shows us that the harvest is coming. My friend, the harvest isn't on your terms and it isn't on mine. I can't tell you the day or the hour that Jesus is coming back. In fact, if you want to know my opinion on it, I tell you, as soon as someone says they know, we can go ahead and put money on the fact that it ain't happening then. No man knows the day or the hour, but the harvest is coming. And whether you believe or not, whether the crop is ready, this, that particular seed is ready to be harvested or not, the harvest is coming. Our God is a God of the harvest. And so we must come to him on his terms. We must receive from him what we need for eternal life. And we must bear fruit, proving what Christ has done in our life. Because the harvest is coming. He's sovereign and he's in control. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt God's feelings. It doesn't affect who God is for you not to believe in him. He's not bothered by it. He is God. And the, one of the beautiful truths of his word is he is God and he is God alone. 
What does that mean? He doesn't ask us. In fact, he told Job, hey, where were you, buddy? Where were you when I was hanging the stars on nothing? Where were you when I was creating the galaxy with the word of my power? Where were you? Surely I sought your counsel when Job had an issue with how God was treating him. It's on his terms. And so if we're to come to him, we're to come to him on his terms. I'm going to read finally and we'll be done. Mark 4, 33. Hardness of heart, by the way, for all of you people that are dying because I didn't get that quote. Hardness of heart cannot prevent the harvest. You're not going to stave off the harvest because you refuse to commit your life to Christ. It's coming. It's coming regardless. Mark 4, 33-34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. How do we know the mystery of God's word? We find it in Jesus. We find it in Christ. And we have something the people on the hillside of Galilee didn't have. We have the finished work of Christ. He has completed the work of our salvation. And if we would come to him on his terms, if we would surrender our life to him, if we would receive the light of the world, then we can have eternal life. We can live in obedience to him through his indwelling presence in our life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, and you're, you're so important, so very important. You're going to have to come to Christ on his terms. The harvest is coming, but Jesus is the light of the world. And it may mean pursuing a life different than the life you had planned, you had scheduled out for yourself. But he has made himself available to you. Oh, it doesn't make sense. It makes perfect sense that we would remain in our sin until our destruction. But just as Jesus told his disciples, to you have been entrusted the secret, the kingdom of God. So he has made that available for every one of us in here today. Through his Holy Spirit that we can discern his truth. If we will exercise ourselves toward godliness. So if you're here and you need a relationship with Christ, I'd love for you to come. When we say, I say amen, and we begin to sing, as you stand to your feet, find the center aisle. We've got counselors who would love to talk to you about a decision you need to, any decision you need to make for Christ. But maybe you're here, and maybe, uh, you, maybe you need to get yourself back in alignment. You are looking at yourself in the mirror that is these parables. You're seeing yourself for who you are, and you recognize that though I have a relationship with Christ, I'm not where I need to be. Maybe you need to respond in whatever way that means. Whatever that looks like. Maybe that means coming and just laying your life, laying the things that have distracted you for far too long, laying them down at the altar and giving it over to the Lord in prayer. This altar is open for you. Maybe you want to pray to see that happen in others that you know are struggling. 
This altar is open. Maybe that means coming and finding me and sharing with me that you need to join Lindsay Lane. Join what we're doing so that you can be encouraged, you can be discipled, you can be held accountable in areas of your life that you've fallen short. Maybe you need to respond in obedience through baptism. Whatever the case may be, I pray that you would respond as the Spirit leads in these next few moments. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that we can see not just an illustration, not just a story, not just a mirror reflecting who we are, but we thank you that you have revealed who you are through them. God, as we peer into the window that shows us who you are, God, may we respond in a way that just makes sense. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Father, we, we love you and we thank you for this time that you've given us to respond. These parables are made there to make us think, make us reason, to make us realize where we are, and to then call us to response. And I pray that we would respond in obedience to you today. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come? Whatever decision needs to be made, whatever you need to do, would you respond in obedience to the Lord today?